Well, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning, Questioning Christianity, and we are so excited for this series. Over the next six weeks, we are going to be asking and answering six questions that people ask of Christianity, people both believers and non-believers. And the goal of this series is hopefully that as visitors come and then as we hear them, we will be better prepared to answer these questions when we are confronted with them, when we are witnessing, and that walls to the gospel will be broken down. Before we get to our question that we're answering this morning, I want to start with a story, and I want to introduce you to two people. This is Arul and Pakiyama. They should appear on the screen in just a second. Arul was a small boy in South Asia when his father needed to take a loan in order to provide for the family. So he took a loan from a quarry owner, a local quarry owner, and he began working in the quarry. The loan was $200, and the, the goal was to work there, pay off the loan, and provide for the family until things got better, and then leave the quarry and get a job. But the owner of the quarry, instead of letting Arul's father pay off the loan, decided to keep Arul's father there, keep Arul's family there, and enslave them without pay, so that they could not pay off their loan. And so for the next decade, Arul grew up in this quarry, breaking rocks, laying dynamite, getting injured, being abused, seven days a week, 12 hours a day with no break. And during that same decade, Pakiyama's family also came into the quarry, and they were married But the work continued, and she inherited the same debt of $200 that the owner of the quarry would not let them pay off. And when when Arul would ask for permission to do something for his family, he was threatened. His owner told him this, You, Arul, cannot go anywhere. Even if you die, you must only be with me and work for me. If you go anywhere, I'll come searching for you. Why am I telling you this story? This story is one example of modern-day slavery. And the question we are answering this morning is, is the Bible pro-slavery? It's an important question for us to ask for several reasons. As you just heard, it is relevant for today. Slavery is a real problem, and we as Christians need to know how to handle it, how to speak about it, how to fight it. And further, a faithful disciple of Jesus who's reading the word is going to come across passages in the Bible that may seem confusing. For example, Ephesians 6, 5 says, Bondservants, or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. We need to know how to interpret these passages that we come across. Is God pro-slavery? Is the Bible advocating that slavery is okay? We must answer this question correctly because we're not just asking, is the Bible pro-slavery? But we are, in fact, asking, is God pro-slavery? Because it is his word. So that's the question we're answering this morning. Guess you came on a, a fun morning. We're so, we're so excited to have you here. But this is the question we're answering. And uh, we're going to answer it in, by looking at three things. Number one, the institution of slavery. Number two, the reconfiguration of slavery, and number three, the undoing of slavery. So first we're going to look at the institution of slavery. And we have to understand how the Bible treats this topic because when I say the word slavery, 
different things pop into our minds, I imagine. Many of us probably imagine 17th, 18th, 19th century America, men and women picking cotton in the South. Some of us may imagine things such as like the story I just told, more modern forms of slavery. And while these share some similarities with the slavery that is happening in the Bible, the slavery at the time of Jesus is very different. So we kind of have to go back in time to the, t- the time of Rome, the first century, when Jesus comes onto the scene, into the world, and understand what slavery was like then. Because at that time, slavery, first of all, you, you, were, you were a slave. Only, you were, if you were a slave, you were one of two groups. You were a prisoner of war, or you were willing. You were a willing slave. Many men and women in the time of Jesus sold themselves into slavery willingly. It was a class of society. If things were tough, you could sell yourself into slavery and have guaranteed food, shelter, and protection. It was sometimes seen as the best option. And then slaves were paid for them generally, and generally they were paid, and in most cases they could actually buy their freedom. They could enter into slavery, work for a while, buy their freedom, and leave. And in some cases, slaves were, actually in many cases, slaves were actually considered part of the family unit, the household. If you, this is why when you read some of Paul's letters and he starts talking about how husbands and wives should relate and then how children and parents should relate, the next thing he talks about is how masters and slaves should relate. That's because oftentimes they were considered part of the family. So slavery, it was a class of society. It was not so much the hate-fueled racism that occurred in America and occurs in the world today, but instead an accepted part of everyday Roman life. Nevertheless, as all man-made institutions are, it was open to corruption. It was brutal. Men and women were abused. The, the masters held their slave, the lives of their slaves in their hands. They could kill them, send them to another country, harm them, abuse them with little to no punishment And this is the world that Jesus, the Son of God, enters into. All this is already established. And Jesus comes in. He starts preaching a gospel of salvation, an equal gospel of salvation for all people. And he proclaims to his disciples, he teaches them, love your neighbor. And so the question naturally comes up because people begin believing in Jesus. The gospel goes to all corners of the Roman Empire. And so people begin believing, and the question naturally comes up, what do we do with our slaves. Is God okay with slavery as long as I treat them nicely? This is the same question we ask ourselves when we begin to follow Christ. We begin to ask how my following Jesus impacts every area, every every area of my life. So Christians at the time of Jesus are asking, what do we do? Is the is God, is the Bible pro slavery? Well, we find an answer in Paul's letter to Philemon. So if you will, if you've not already, go ahead and turn to the book of Philemon. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And we're going to see number two, the reconfiguration of slavery. Now, Paul is writing to Philemon, Paul the apostle, the great apostle. He's writing to Philemon. And this, this letter can seem so insignificant because it's so short. You can read it in like two minutes, but it packs a mighty punch packs a mighty punch. So he's writing to Philemon. Well, who is Philemon? Well, if you jump back and you look in verse 1 of Philemon, we learn that Philemon is Paul's brother in the faith. He is his beloved fellow worker. And then in verse 2, we learn that Philemon 
actually hosts a church in his home. Small group leaders, he's kind of like you. So he's a well-to-do man. He has a house big enough to host a church. He's a devout Christian man. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this about Philemon. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So Philemon is not just a Christian. He is a Christian who is known for his faith and his love for people. He is, when people think of Philemon, they think, oh man, I want to be like him. Look at his faith. Look at his love for Jesus. I want to be just like him. You can probably think of someone in your own life like that. Someone who you just look up to and think, I want to be like him. That's who Philemon is. And Philemon even brings Paul joy, as we just read. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, because I know you're faithful and loving God and loving people, and I hear about you. So why is Paul writing to this devout Christian? It seems like a Letters were not common. We have to remember that. At this time, they didn't have computers. They didn't ha- even, like, like, writing was expensive. So for Paul to write a letter to this individual man is uh, it's pretty important. But we look at verse 10, we get a hint. Paul writes in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul is writing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Well, who is Onesimus? Jump down to verse 16. I told you we'd be jumping all over this book. Verse 16, Onesimus, we learn that Onesimus is Philemon's bondservant. He is his slave. The Greek word is doulos. They mean the same thing. And Paul says, well, Paul doesn't say, but here is what has happened. Philemon is Onesimus's master, and Onesimus somehow has come into contact with Paul, and what has likely happened is Onesimus has messed up in some way with his master, Philemon. If we look ahead to verse 18, Paul offers to pay whatever Onesimus owes. So likely Onesimus has messed up in some way. By the way, if you want to do a tongue twister, say Onesimus 10 times in a row. But Paul is offering to pay whatever Onesimus owes. So, so Onesimus has run away from Paul. He run away from Philemon. He's come to Paul. He sought asylum here. And this was not uncommon for slaves, according to Roman law. A slave could run, flee. If they've messed up, they could flee from their master, go to a friend of their master, and ask that friend to appeal for them to their master, to kind of ask their master, like, hey, can you speak on my behalf to my master and ask for his mercy? It's kind of like when uh, with kids do this. I don't have children yet. Uh, I was a child at one point, though, and I remember doing this. To some of you, I still look like a child. I remember being a child, though, and I remember that when I messed up, and you can probably remember this, too, when I messed up, I knew my parents were going to find out. I was, you know, the, the hammer of justice was going to come down. I had to be tactful. And so I would confess to the parent who I thought was going to be more merciful to me, and then I would ask them, hey, can you tell mom or you can, can you tell dad? And so that way they may be, be nicer to me. Am I the only one that relates to that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just me. But that is what is happening here. Onesimus has come to Paul. He has co- come into contact with Paul. And he's asking Paul, hey, can you appeal to Philemon for me? I've messed up. Something has happened, though. Something is different. Something has changed because Onesimus has become a Christian. Look again at verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child, whose father I became. 
That doesn't mean that Paul has discovered that he just became biologically Onesimus's father. It means that he has led Onesimus to Christ. He has, became, he has become a Christian. Paul is his father in the faith. And that means that something amazing and drastic has happened. It means the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus is not the same anymore. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, For this, perhaps, is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. It's like Paul is saying to Onesimus, look, to Philemon, he's like saying, Philemon, look, Onesimus is no longer your slave. Your relationship has changed dramatically. You are now beloved brothers. You are not master and slave. You are brother and brother. And not just in some spiritual sense, but in a very real sense that is, that like, it's not just some out there spiritual, yay, we're brothers. But no, it's like you are brothers. And this is similar to what happens when two people get married. You know, before you get married, I mean, I was thinking about this with Julie and I. Before I married Julie, her family was not my family. Um, they were, I would refer to them as Julie's dad, Julie's mom, uh, Julie's sisters, Julie's brother. But once we were married, they became family. They became my brothers, my sisters. I got another amazing set of parents. The same transition is happening here. In Christ, we are brother and sister, not in just some kind of spiritual sense, but in a very real sense. Church, we are a family united around Christ. Our relationships have been reconfigured like Onesimus and Philemon. And so knowing all this, what is Paul's appeal concerning Onesimus? What does he want Philemon to do? We know that in verse 12 we saw that Paul is sending Onesimus back. It's likely that Onesimus has this letter in his hand when he gets to Philemon. Can you imagine how scary that would be? Hey, Philemon, I'm the guy that ran away from you. I have this letter from Paul. Um, And in verse 17, we read what Paul wants Philemon to do. Verse 17, Paul writes, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus, Philemon, as you would receive me, your beloved brother. In verse 20, Paul writes, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. In other words, Philemon, I want to hear of your faithfulness to God again. I want to hear of the love you have for people. So though it's not said explicitly, it's clear what Paul wants. Paul wants Onesimus to be freed. He wants Philemon to acknowledge that their relationship is different and free him. And the basis for this is the fact that is, is the fact that in Jesus they are no longer master and slave, but brother and brother. The slavery relationship has been reconfigured by Christ. It cannot be changed. Brother cannot own brother. It doesn't work. So that is the reconfiguring of slavery. Number three, the undoing of slavery. I think sometimes, you know, I appreciate it when people are pretty direct in conversation, and I think we could maybe think the same thing of like, Paul and Jesus, can, can you just say slavery is bad and be done with it so we can just, you know, we don't have to have this sermon. But what Jesus and his disciple Paul are doing is something 
really amazing. They are undermining the institution of slavery. They are undoing it. Because what Paul is calling Philemon to do is he's calling him to act on the command to love his neighbor. It's like, look, Jesus teaches to love our neighbor. Philemon, this is how you do it. You see him as your brother. Gavin Ortland, he's a pastor and writer for the Gospel Coalition. He writes, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes, abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. In other words, the gospel makes it so that the love, the love command of Jesus makes it so that slavery just simply cannot exist because we are called to love and serve one another. So though we wish for Paul and Jesus to maybe be a little bit more direct, we see that they are undermining it. They are undoing slavery. So this reconfiguring of the slavery relationship is actually its undoing. But the question still remains for us. What do we do with passages in the Bible like Ephesians 6.5, which says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. And other passages like Colossians 3.22 and 1 Peter 2.18, they all seem to suggest this approval of slavery, like it's okay. I don't have time to examine every passage. If we did, you'll thank me for not addressing every passage. If we did, we'd be here till tomorrow. So what I want to do instead is I want to give you three kind of parameters that as you're reading your Bible, you can apply to these texts. Number one of this is with this. Paul is always regulating. He is never supporting. He is accepting the fact that this is part of the Roman world. And instead of just saying, don't, don't have slaves, what he's saying, preach the gospel, obey the love command, and slavery will be undermined. Paul is never regulating, or he's always regulating, never supporting. And then number two, keep in mind other New Testament texts. These are not the only ones. There are plenty that condemn slavery. First Timothy 1 and Revelation 18 are two of those. And then number three, this is one I teach to the students all the time, the students, 7th through 12th graders. I say, context, 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 context. And I say it 10 more times. Context is the answer. I was kind of hoping for an amen at the end of that. But that's okay. You will amen in a second when I explain. Okay. Context is the answer. If you, Any verse in the Bible, if you go in and you pluck a verse out of the Bible and you pull it out, that's dangerous. You know, like any time you just pull it, even, even like John 3.16, that could even be misconstrued if you take it out from its context. And unfortunately in the past, people, especially I'm going to just say it, in, in, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in the South, slave owners took verses like Ephesians 6-5 out of context, and they used it to oppress people. They used it to say to slaves, it is the will of God that you be a slave and obey me. And you should be happy doing that. But if you keep reading not three verses after verse 5, Paul tells the masters to serve the slaves. He says, do what your slaves are doing. So serve your slaves as they are serving you. So you've got slave-serving master and master-serving slave. That's not a master-slave relationship. That's a brother-love relationship. Again, Paul is undermining slavery. Just like in Philemon. If they are serving one another, if they are loving one another in that way, then they are brothers. Context is the answer. 
One of the first things they drill into you in seminary is they tell you whatever passage you're teaching on, whatever passage you're studying, and this applies to you guys too, not just to people in seminary, but anytime you look at a passage of the Bible, consider it in the grand story of Scripture. Think of the whole story of the Bible and find where your passage fits into that. Well, what is the whole story of the Bible? If I could sum it up in one thing, it's this. It's God rescuing his people and blessing them. That's the story of the Bible. Walk with me through this on this. We're about to cover the Bible in like two minutes already. God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden, and he blessed them with his presence. He allowed them to enjoy all his blessings freely in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned, but God made a plan after that. He made a plan to bless the world through the family of Abraham which became Israel. And Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out into freedom, and he blessed them with his presence and his law in the land, the promised land. And Israel sinned yet again, but what did God do? While Israel was carried off into exile, he said, don't worry, I will rescue you. And he came again and brought them out of exile and brought them into freedom and blessed them again with his presence. Then you jump into the New Testament where you find us, and you find Jesus teaching to us, and Jesus is teaching that we are enslaved to sin, that we are in chains to sin and death, and that without Christ, without salvation, we are dying. We need rescue from our sins. So he sends his son, sacrifices his own son, to die on our behalf and rise and give us eternal life, to free us from our sin. Amen? And not just that, but after he frees us, he says, I am coming back again, and when I come back again, I will free this entire earth. I will restore it, make it like the garden, and there will be peace, and I will bring all of you who followed me in, and you will enjoy paradise with me. Amen? I like amens. I like amens. The Bible is a story of rescue in freedom, how backwards would it be for us who have received freedom in Christ from our sin to impose it on other people? How backwards would that be? So the answer to our question this morning, is the Bible pro-slavery, is undoubtedly and assuredly no. Rather, it is pro-freedom. Jesus has brought all of us freedom in Christ. And if any Christian tells you otherwise, I think you need to assume one of three things. Either one, they're not a Christian. Two, they have not read their Bible well enough. Or three, they have unfortunately received some bad preaching and teaching. The answer to our question is no. So what do we do? Because I think it's safe to assume no one in here owns slaves. So what, how, do we, how do we pull from this today in our time? Well, first, we recognize that in Christ, church, we are brothers and sisters. Our relationships have been configured. We are brothers and sisters, the family of God. When you look across the aisle and you see someone you don't know, you're not looking at a stranger. You're looking at a family member whom you haven't met yet. That's who we are as the church. And it's easy to sometimes let the social divisions that threaten to divide us in society enter this building. But let me tell you, we are, this church is not made up of Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents. It's not made up of blue-collar and white-collar. It's not made up of country people and city people. It is made up of the family of God. And I'm not being naive in saying we don't have differences because I know that if I ask for 
an opinion from everyone in this room on the same issue, I'll get however many people in here, I'll get the same amount of different opinions. We are different people. We have differences between us, but the primary relationship between us in this room is the family of God. And we should look and approach each other with that mindset first. So are you seeking to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, or are you letting, allowing apparent differences to divide you, to keep you from introducing yourself to someone? Each week, Brent and I challenge each other, kind of unofficially. We don't, like, really challenge you, but it's, it's kind of unofficial. We try to kind of compete and see who can meet the, the most new people and get to know them because we want to. We want to know people, and it's a goal for myself every Sunday to meet as many new people as I can and not just say hi, but to talk and to get to know the person. So I challenge you to do the same. These are not strangers in this room. If they're not Christian, if 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 they're not a Christian in this room, they're a potential brother or sister. Get to know the people in the family of God. Join a small group. Find a place to serve. Enjoy the family of God. So that's number one. Recognize that in Christ we are brothers and sisters. Second, pulling from what we've talked about this morning, we cannot be okay with slavery at any time in any place. We have to acknowledge as the church that the church has made mistakes about this in the past in America. At a time when it should have spoken up, it didn't. But then we also have to not let it ever happen again. Christians, we have a responsibility to cry out against slavery because it is evil. And that means first facing the reality that slavery still exists today. You may not know this, but it does. In the world today, as we are sitting here and I'm talking, there are 40, more than 40 million slaves in the world today. These statistics come from polarisproject.org. You can check them out afterward. 40 million slaves. That is more than at any other point in human history. Polaris Project estimates that out of those 40 million, 25% are children. 75% are women and girls. The labor and human trafficking industry, the slavery of our world today makes $150 billion a year. The Center for Research on Globalization estimates that in the U.S., our country, our home turf, 100,000 boys and girls, some as young as nine years old, are trafficked for sex. This should be unacceptable to us as Christians. This should make our blood boil. This should make us cry out in prayer, Jesus, come and end this evil. This should make us set aside our iPads and our bucket lists and get active and get informed and, uh, and, and go against this tide. It is not okay to be okay or passive about slavery existing anywhere. And guess what? It's here in Arkansas, too. According to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, last year, 30 cases were reported in Arkansas. 30. It can happen here. So what do we do? Well, number one is get informed. 
look into the issue. I encourage you, visit polarisproject.org. Visit IJM.org. IJM stands for International Justice Mission. They're an organization Julie and I support financially and through prayer. They are the largest anti-slavery Christian-based organization in the world. They work in about 20 countries around the world. So one, get informed. Two, give. You may not be able to raid a brothel and rescue slaves, and you may not be able to try a trafficker in court, but you can support those who can. And oftentimes, what is limiting people is money. And then number three, look. So get informed, give, look. I'm challenging you to look. I don't want to make us paranoid. I'm not trying to make you paranoid. But the fact is, things like slavery can, can exist in Basel, Arkansas today. So there's a, there's a number, a National Human Trafficking Hotline number. It should be on the screen. It's one 888 1-888-373-7888. If you see something suspicious, call it and give a tip. I've done this. In college, I was, in, I was at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, and uh, we were, there's like this main drag through the town. There's like thousands of people here for this film festival. In between movies, some friends and I were walking up this street. Something caught my eye off to the left. I looked down an alley, and I saw what looked like a group of women surrounded by or being guarded by a group of men, and you could tell something was off. Something was not right. The women did not look happy. It was not a good situation. So I called and I gave a tip. I don't know what happened of it. But the thing is we have to be aware and to call. So put the number in your phone. We as Christians cannot be okay with slavery anywhere at any time. To quote one of my heroes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And church, think about this. Imagine how people would see Jesus, would see us, if we as Christians owned an issue like this, if we fought against it, if we helped in slavery, what kind of witness would that be to the world about what we care about and what God cares about? What an opportunity we have. So that's the second thing. We cannot be okay with slavery. And last, third, we need to remember that Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives. We were the captives. We were captive to sin and death, and he came to proclaim freedom to us. To close, I want to return to the, the story of Arul and Pakiyama. I got another picture of him here. Looking a little bit better in that picture. This was taken recently. In 2012, International Justice Mission, along with local law enforcement, rescued their families along with 10 others from the quarry. They were given medical care. They were given proper documentation. And the owner of the quarry and two of his associates were arrested and put in prison, which is a miracle in some of these countries where justice systems are pretty broken. And today, Arul and Pakiyama are not just enjoying their freedom. They are giving it. They now work with IJM and local law enforcement to rescue other people. In fact, Pakiyama, she's a brave, she's a brave woman. I might be butchering her name. But she goes with IJM and actually helps rescue people out of slavery situations. And Arul, this is his quote. He says, While I was in bondage, I was like a prisoner. Now I am like a free bird, enjoying life. Life for me is full of joy now. So the freedom that this man and this woman have received, they are sharing with as many people as they can. Are you sharing what you have received? You have received in the gospel of Jesus freedom 
from your sin? Are you proclaiming that freedom to the world? I don't want us to leave from this place and separate. I don't want us to leave out, leave from this place and think, let's go advocate against slavery, but leave the gospel behind because the two go together. When Christ is proclaimed, hearts change. And when hearts change, slavery ends. When Christ is proclaimed, slavery is undermined. When Christ is proclaimed, when God's name is known, hearts are changed. Slavery is ended. So church, we don't need to go forward and just advocate against slavery. We need to do that. I believe we are called to do that as Christians. We need to go forth proclaiming the gospel, and that's most important because only Jesus can truly change hearts and end evil. So go out from this building this morning to proclaim the freedom that you have found in Christ. And like I said in my last sermon, God is with you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this morning. Father, we are we are so grateful for the many blessings that we enjoy every day, one of which is our freedom. Not just you know, in this nation, we do enjoy a lot of good freedoms. But above all, God, we are freed from the tyranny of sin and death. We know that if the worst befalls us in this world, it is only a passage to paradise with you. Father, we thank you for coming, for choosing to love us, to die for us, which we celebrated last week. You rose from us for us, God. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, that we will let the freedom we have received in Christ, that we will share it with other people and that we will share it through doing things like advocating against modern-day slavery, that we will see each other as brother and sister because we are God. This is family. Father, thank you for the freedom that you have given us. And Lord, we now want to use that freedom to sing to you, to praise you for who you are, not a God of slavery, but a God of rescue and freedom. Amen.